This sermon was recorded at Highway Palo Alto in Palo Alto, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. Well, good morning. I am David. I'm one of the pastors here at Highway. It's great to see all of your bright and shining faces here. Always good to see you. Today is the last day of summer. So if you made a resolution to go to the beach and you haven't yet, YOLO, you better get there today. Uh, Tomorrow, fall starts, and we're so excited about what this new season brings with it. And last week, we started a new series called Missionary, in which we're trying to create a framework. We're trying to create a grid for us to see and to understand God's work in the world. All of the fixing, all of the redeeming, all of the reconciling of all the broken things. That's not just us and not just within our churches, but in families, in neighborhoods, in schools, in workplaces, in cities, in systems, in governments, in the world around us. To see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God's mission in the world. And it's the coming of this kingdom that as followers of Jesus, we've been invited to actually participate in. And the longer that I sit with that reality, the more incredible it seems. Uh, Because there are lots of things uh, that I want to fix, even practical stuff, and I just can't. Which, side note on the practical things, always seems to happen to me when my father-in-law is in town. Thank you, Jamie. Does that happen to anybody else? Jason? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Perhaps. Uh, He's a wonderful man, and he can fix just about anything, but it can lead me to these existential crises of, if I cannot fix a broken refrigerator, how on earth am I supposed to step into the stream of brokenness in the world to, in a way that is helpful, that actually brings healing and restoration, because there are fewer YouTube tutorials for that. And that's why we took some time last week to talk about this interconnectedness between being a part of God's work in the world and giving ourselves to the work of spiritual formation, the process of God at work in us, transforming us into people who live and love like Jesus did. And we covered a couple things I want to just recap quickly because they're important to bring along with us as we continue this conversation. The first is that it's God's work in us, this spiritual formation that actually draws us into God's work in the world, that participating in God's mission in the world is supposed to be an outward representation of an internal change. And that change is to start to see the world in the way that Jesus did and to live in it with the same heart that Jesus had. Like 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we are being transformed into his image by his spirit. And it's about so much more than just better behavior. We sell Christianity and a life of faith so short when we just leave it there because it's about God renewing and restoring us like the scriptures say replacing our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh giving us eyes to see and ears to hear his love for the world 
that calls us to his work in it. There's an interconnectedness between participating in God's mission in the world and being formed into his image. And the second thing that we talked about is that to understand what God is up to in the world, we have to start with Jesus. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that if we want to know what God would do if he were here in human form, we don't need to look any further than the life of Jesus. And so our missiology, the way that we think about and try to live out God's mission in the world has to start with what Jesus said and what Jesus did and not the church tradition we've spent the most time in or have resonated with the most, whether that's a specific church or a denomination or a branch of thought on how church should be because where we confuse those two things, we open ourselves up to allowing our personal preferences to hold a place of sacredness that they were never meant to take. And so we start with Jesus, the image of the invisible God, his life, his mission. And we ask God to mold, to shape, to form our lives and our churches into that image. As we continue on in that conversation today, let's take a moment to pray. I want to invite you to take a moment and just acknowledge, just lift up to God where you are this morning. We are a room full of diverse experiences, uh, even diverse experiences of this past week, but let's come together in prayer, just acknowledging to God for a moment where we are, and then to be united by this same request, that God's Spirit would be at work in us, making all things new. Take a moment, lift up where you are to God. Ask God to be working in us, and then I'll close our time of prayer together. Go ahead, take a moment. God, we come before you this morning, one collected body brought together because of what you've done for us, for the world around us. I pray in this moment that you would give us your love. That you'd help us see ourselves accurately, that you'd help us see the world around us accurately. That we'd open ourselves up to your work in us in a way that draws us into your work in the world around us. We gather in and for your name. Amen. All right. Well, let's pick back up right where we left off last week. We talked about reclaiming this part of Jesus's identity, that he's a king, this thread that's present in all of the gospel accounts of his life, but that can be so easy to lose sight of because he doesn't act like kings normally do. And he certainly talks about his kingdom a lot, 
but the way that he goes about proclaiming and embodying, living out that kingdom are to this day still so contrary to the way that we're used to seeing them because he's just a different kind of king. And I want to revisit some of our words from last week. And thanks so much, by the way, for rolling with an alternate format moment. It was really fun. Uh, it was also really beautiful to hear our church body come together collectively and paint a picture of the kind of king that Jesus is, that Jesus is a healing king, that Jesus is a compassionate king, a patient king, a powerful king, the king of kings, that he is a just king, a sacrificial, humble king, a present with us king, an opposite of all the other kind of kings, king. So what kind of kingdom does this kind of king have? And why is it so important for us to think in kingdom terms anyway? The word can feel kind of antiquated, uh, and I confess that when I hear it, my brain wants to start quoting uh, Monty Python and the quest for the Holy Grail for some reason. <laughs> but thinking about God's work in the world in kingdom terms is important for two reasons. First, it reminds us that there's a king. And it reminds us that we are not that king. That in the end, all of this stuff isn't ours and that we are responsible and that we are accountable for how we steward it. And that in the best way possible, we are not in control of everything. A kingdom perspective reminds us that there's a king and that we are not that king. And it also reminds us that we're a part of something that extends beyond just our own personal experience. That while Jesus is our personal Lord and Savior, Jesus is more than just our personal Lord and Savior. See, it helps Christianity step out of the stream of Western individualism and back into a broader narrative that we've been invited into the same kingdom as everybody else. And as we step out of an individualized faith and into a kingdom faith, a couple things start to take root in us. We're filled with an incredible sense of humility. That we're a, part, a small part of a grand work that God is doing in the world. That we've only been included because God loved us first, not because of any merit or any specialness on our part. And that love that God first showed us is the same love God first shows everyone. As we step into a kingdom faith, we start to be filled with humility, and we start to be filled with an awareness of the world around us. And so whether it's the other side of the street or the other side of the city or the other side of the world, it's all part of God's kingdom and what's happening there and in the lives of people there matters. Stepping into a kingdom faith starts to fill us with an awareness of the world around us. But have you noticed that humility and awareness always seem to be in short supply for some reason? The internet reminds us of that repeatedly. This isn't a new issue, though. It seems to be hardwired into the broken human condition. Jesus, in fact, encounters it at a dinner party. Have you been to that dinner party before, by the way? Where the general tone is lacking humility and awareness, and then you get 
stuck in this loop of, do I say something? Do I just go? Do I just replay episodes of my favorite TV show in my mind to pass the time until this is over? <laughs> well, Jesus is at a dinner party, maybe like that. It's being hosted by one of the Jewish religious leaders. And Luke captures the moment in chapter 14 of his gospel. And it's important for us to remember that meals in this time were more than just gathering friends around a table. They're an important social structure, reinforcing positions of honor, extending in invitations like social currency. You wanted to invite people. You wanted to be invited by in return. And so when it's time to sit down, everyone scrambles for the seat of honor, the seat closest to the host. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. no. When you get invited somewhere, you take the seat of least honor. That way, if the host wants you to move, you are moved towards honor. But if you take the most important seat, and it turns out that you are not the most important person, the host is going to have to come up to you and say, I'm going to need you to move down. How embarrassing for you. And then Jesus says this in Luke 14, verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then Jesus turns to the host and says this. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, if you do, they may invite you back. And so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, stepping into a kingdom kind of faith brings with it a humility and an awareness of the world around us that starts to draw us into the kingdom work that God is doing in the world. So what's that kingdom like? What kind of kingdom does this different kind of king, this Jesus king, have? Well, the opposite of every other kind of king, king, has an opposite of every other kind of kingdom, kingdom. It's one that's got an entirely different set of values. And you might have heard this phrase before, upside down kingdom, because it's an inversion. It's a turning on its head of the way the world seems to work so often. A kingdom where, like Jesus said, it's those who humble themselves who will be exalted where you use your resources and influence that you have to elevate those around you who are looked down upon instead of throwing a banquet to secure a better position for yourself. Where the first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus says his kingdom is a place where the greatest among you will be a servant of all. Where the poor in spirit, the meek, the peacemaker, the merciful are the ones who are blessed. A kingdom where people love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. It's not like any other kingdom. 
And Jesus uses lots of metaphors to describe what his kingdom is like. It's like a mustard seed. It's like a treasure buried in a field. My favorite, it's like a pearl cast before pigs, yeast in a bread recipe. And Jesus also says it's like a wedding banquet being thrown by a king for his son. It's like a meal, like the one we just read about in Luke 14. A meal that's about more than just gathering for food, a meal that's an important social structure, a way to show and to be shown honor. See, these meals were visual representations of what was valuable and who was valuable. And there's a long tradition recorded in the scriptures of kings hosting really elaborate banquets to show off the wealth of their kingdoms to, or to celebrate a victory or a marriage or a Tuesday. And these were moments to display who they were. And these were moments to display how they wanted to be seen by those in attendance. See, the way kings hosted these meals reflected what their kingdoms were like how they wanted them to be seen. And both Matthew and Mark put two meals from two different kings right next to each other in their Gospels. And one can't help but wonder about the intentionality of that choice to directly contrast the way Herod, the Roman-approved king in Israel at the time, hosted a meal with the way that Jesus did. And so we're going to look at Mark chapter 6 for a few minutes and contrast these three or these two meals that represent these kings, that represent these kingdoms in three different areas. First, how do you get invited? Second, how do you get seen or how do you get a need or a request met? And third, how does the meal end? What's the end result? It's important to share that this isn't my grid. Uh, a few weeks ago, Jake sent me a link, a link to a short blog post by this really multi-gifted person named Glenn Packiam, who's an incredible songwriter and worship leader and also a really insightful theologian. And he wrote about these two meals in a way that leads to the right question. If you want to take a look at it, I'll post the link in our campus Facebook group. Uh, let's take a look at Herod's banquet and Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. And on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. How do you get invited to Herod's birthday throwdown? You hold a position of power and influence and wealth. You're a person that it benefits the king to solidify a relationship with. A government official, military officer, a powerful citizen. You got an invitation based on your status. And if you reflected the kind of person the king wanted to be seen and associated with. Continuing on in verse 2. When the daughter of Herodias. Now Herodias is an important person in this story. She is the wife of someone named Philip. Uh, who happens to be Herod's brother. She is also the wife of Herod. And if that sounds confusing, it's because it is, and it plays an important role in what we're about to talk about in just a moment. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. 
The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. See, the way to be seen at Herod's party is to perform. And if you perform well enough, you might just be given the space to ask for something or to make a need known. So you had to be important enough to make the guest list and then perform well enough to get seen in order to get the opportunity to be heard and continue on with me in verse 24. So she went to, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered, aggressive request. And at once the girl hurried back into uh, the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I wonder if that's how Herod saw that going. John the Baptist, from jail, had been calling out that the relationship between Herodias and Herod was not right because she was his brother's wife. And Herodias hated him for it. See, this is what the opportune time had come for. This is the moment that she had been waiting for, and when given the chance, she took his life. See, the feast of Herod's kingdom ends in death. And can you see the pattern that gets reinforced for everyone in attendance? I better stay on this guest list. I better make sure that I stay on the king's good side. I better make sure that I stay in the spotlight because whoever has the king's favor can in a moment and with one sentence end my life. See, Herod's kingdom is fueled by fear. Fear that fuels a need for power and influence to make the guest list. Fear that fuels a need to perform to be seen. And fear of that power and influence and performance being questioned that ultimately leads to the choice to take someone's life. Herod's kingdom is fueled by fear and leads to death, but not so with Jesus. See, Jesus and his disciples are catching up after he sent them out to preach repentance in the surrounding villages, and a crowd gathers around them so big in a way that they say, we got to move. So they hop on a boat and head to somewhere more isolated. But Mark 6.33 says, But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. See, the way to be included in Jesus' meal is to just show up hungry for something that compels you to run around a lake chasing a boat. And there's a real humility, a real certain kind of disregard for being perceived as dignified, which is the opposite of how to get invited to Herod's meal. So how does Jesus the king respond to a bunch of uninvited guests derailing what was probably an important debrief with his Disciples, take a look at verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. When Jesus landed, he saw them. 
sweaty, dusty, undignified, out of breath, he saw them and was filled with compassion for them. There is no performance. Jesus sees them, is filled with compassion and starts to feed that spiritual hunger that they have in a way that they will never be hungry again. See, in Jesus' kingdom, people are seen because he sees them. And he steps into moments to meet needs and requests that sometimes aren't even voice. See, this crowd hangs out all day. And the disciples, ever practical as they are, are like, uh, Jesus, you might want to let these people go so they can go buy some food. They haven't eaten all day. They ran around a lake to get here. Metabolism's probably cranking. They're probably hungry. And Jesus looks at them and says, you feed them. Such an incredible moment. And the disciples start thinking about how much it's going to cost, and Jesus says, Just bring me what you have. And he takes five loaves of bread and two fish, blesses them, and then feeds 5,000 people. And take a look at verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. See, in Jesus's kingdom, anyone hungry enough to show up is seen and met with compassion and addressed as a whole person, both physical and spiritual, and brought to life and abundance. And Herod's kingdom, reflective of so many ways the world continues to be, is built on power and status that are maintained by performance and ultimately leads to death. But Jesus' kingdom is built on hunger that's met with compassion that invites participation and leads to life and abundance. And this is just the tip of the iceberg in a conversation about what Jesus' kingdom is like. And then in the next two weeks, we'll talk about what it means that we've been commissioned to the same mission that Jesus had to proclaim and embody this same kingdom. But before we talk about what it looks like on a practical level to be a part of Jesus' kingdom work, we have to wrestle with the question, the right kind of question. And it's this. Whose meal are we attending? Which meal are we at? Are we fighting for an invitation to spaces that will make us feel significant? That will make us feel powerful or important? Are we living a life where we are only as good as our last performance? where we carefully curate our image because how we are seen is how we get what we need? Or are we running the shoreline? Hungry, but eager. Expectant, but seen. 
met with compassion and abundance that we're invited to extend to everyone else gathered there. Whose meal are we at? And how does that shape the impact of our lives? Because truthfully, in the moment, it probably feels better to be at Herod's meal. The food probably tastes better. There's probably more than two dishes. And the reason I think that I keep coming back to his table, this need for importance that gets maintained by performance, is because when it works, it feels really good. I bet it made his guests feel great to be there. But it does not lead to life. For me or for the people around me. See, the table that I choose becomes the kingdom that I serve. And the table that I choose becomes the one that I create for others. And Herod's kingdom invites me to take and to position myself and to perform to gain a sense of importance or significance or status that inform my value that I need to protect at any cost. But Jesus' kingdom reminds me that everything that I need, everything that my soul longs for has been freely given, despite the cost. It invites me to just show up hungry. To take what I have, even though it's not enough, to bring it to the king. To watch him bless it. And then do more with it for the sake of others than I could ever imagine. Whose table are we at this morning? Jake and the band are going to come lead us in a song called The Kingdom and the King. And during that song, I want to ask that we sit with that question. Whose table are we at this morning? And if you want to sing along, then sing. If you want to pray the words to the song, please do so. Or just take a minute and breathe. And be reminded for a moment that for all the Herods of the world, there's a king who sees those who are hungry, who meets them with compassion, who dignifies them by inviting their participation that leads to abundance in life. Would you pray with me? God, I pray right now that you would begin the work in us of giving us clarity about where it is actually that our allegiances lie. So easy to get wrapped up in both kingdoms. We confess that. I confess that to you this morning. I pray that it would not be a sense of guilt, that it would not be a sense of 
duty or obligation, but it would actually be your love that fuels us to courageously ask these questions. The security of your love for us and the awesomeness in the scale of your love for the world around us. Would you draw us into your work in it? We love you. We do this for you and for your name.